Well, good morning, City Gates. Uh, Mike here. Welcome to uh, our time this morning. And of course, thank you to the Bible Project for uh, summarizing the book of Numbers way better than I could. And uh, now I have the unenviable task of both uh, tackling a book with the most boring uh, title in the whole Bible and following Toby, who absolutely hit it out of the park last week. Uh, doing Leviticus. So here I am. You know, I was going to use a prop this week, but I couldn't find one. So I just, I, I've been, I've been, I used to be the prop guy. I'm so out propped by, uh, by Toby, unfortunately. But uh, I said to Adrienne, do we have like a lamb anywhere? And she goes, yeah, we have one. And basically what I was going to do, but we, I couldn't find it. It's in the Christmas box. I was just basically going to put a knife through the head of a lamb with blood everywhere and just say, that's the summary of Leviticus and move on. But I couldn't find the lamb. So the kids are safe. Here we go. So today I am going to entitle my message, A Warning, A Promise, and A Hope. And um, before I, let me set the stage by just asking a question. Any road trip fans here? Obviously we're talking about a road trip. Any fans of road trips here? Yeah, we all like road trips, right? I have been on some epic road trips. I drove across Canada with my son um, a number of years ago. I've driven the other way. I've basically driven across the whole country. Um, but I remember on uh, my 30th wedding anniversary, Edwina and I uh, went to Israel and uh, we were on a guided tour and we finished with a few days left to spare at the end. We're in a hotel in Tel Aviv and I kind of, we had this brainstorm. Why don't we try and figure a way of getting to Jordan, crossing into Jordan, seeing Petra. And uh, Petra, uh, look it up, not now, because you're on airplane mode, but later on, uh, you can look up what Petra is, but that's where they filmed uh, part of the uh, Ark of the Covenant. No, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, sorry. Not, not a great movie guy, clearly. And uh, anyway, we thought it'd be really cool to visit Jordan. So somehow we got on the phone, this was late, and we organized it within an hour. And it's complicated. Because to cross into Jordan, you have to go through security and you have to have somebody on the Jordanian side of the border meet you and take you a distance to your, um, to your coach or whatever it was. So we did that, got it organized. We also had to drive the length of the country to do that. So we had to drive from the top all the way down. We actually put our feet in the Red Sea, came back a little bit. Uh, we had to leave our rental car on the Israeli side, go through security, Jordanian person met us, put us on a coach, we went to the hotel where everybody smoked in hotels, very interesting. And, uh, and we're in a hotel overnight and the next day we get up early, we get another coach ride, we go to Petra for maybe four or five hours. And then we get another coach right back to the border again. And uh, then we have to go through this really super aggressive Israeli question period as we go through customs and security. Anyway, we get through, finally we, um, you know, we jump in the car and, uh, and we think, oh, it's just gone exactly according to plan, except there was one minor issue. Didn't have much gas in the car. And, um, and so, you know, I have to drive the full length of the country again. And our flight is the next morning at 4 a.m. And we're there at 5 p.m. So, like, it's seamless. Like, it's like, what could go wrong with this planning? I think it's absolutely epic. So, um, Got in the vehicle, uh, and then and then I'd seen a gas station maybe about like further back on the way back up from the Red Sea, but it was like 20 minutes one way, and I thought, ah, another 45 minutes. We'll just fill up. We'll, we'll find somewhere. Um, the only problem was uh, we didn't find anywhere. <laughs> and anywhere we did find, because it had just gone into the Sabbath, 
everywhere was closed. And we are driving now through the wilderness of sin, literally. And uh, we had driven that in the daytime coming the other way. And I had said to Edwina, it's no wonder the children of Israel complained about this place. It was desolate. The only signs we saw would be where tank crossings. So we, so we are driving now. It's now pitch black. We're driving, and I know what's out there. That the problem is I know what's out there. It's pitch black, but I know there's nothing out there, just dangerous stuff and maybe dangerous people. And I'm trying to be really relaxed about it. Edwina is escalating. And, I, and, and I'm, trying to be, I'm trying to be relaxed. And every time she doesn't, she's not looking at me. She looks away. I hit the distance till empty button. And I'm like, I'm just calculating it. And I'm, I'm just, ah, we'll be fine. And I'm sweating inside. Because I'm thinking, what happens if we run out of gas in the desert? And we did not see one vehicle for two and a half hours. Not even one. We are alone. And so um, if you're married, you understand what happens in scenarios like this. Uh, I knew I was responsible, but I had to find a way to make sure that Edwina felt she was responsible. <laughs> and uh, it's, just a, it's just a skill you develop over the years. Um, I'm excellent at it, by the way. I can give lessons free. Um, but let's just say that both of us, you know, we were starting to do the blame game thing. And um, we were certainly, uh, I'm sure both of us were living through worst case scenarios. I was getting fingers chopped off by people asking me for my passport, you know, one finger at a time. I mean, I was going through all these things in this scenario. And we were all honestly right down to the wire. We pulled into this tiny town and we see a gas station with like this single bulb hanging there. We're like, no, please. And some guy actually opened the door and we knocked on it and we got gas. And uh, it was such a relief. And then we got to the airport, couldn't find how to park the car, got the car parked ultimately. And, uh, and our blood returned to our faces when we were sitting awaiting uh we were about three hours ahead of our flight <laughs> i just thought yeah exactly like we planned it it's so perfect um so that was probably for you know pretty epic so that was our one of our epic road trips i've had a few of those but numbers as they said in the uh in the um, short video it was a numbers is a 40-year road trip that should have taken two weeks and uh in the harshest elements uh, climates and conditions with a couple million people with flocks in tow, kids, and very scant provisions. And I know it's easy for us to say, man, they were so dumb. They were so stupid. God kept providing for them. You should see that desert. You would not want to be in that desert. It is abs There's nothing there but sand and rocks. No shade. It's, 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 it's terrible. And so what I did have more compassion for the children of Israel on that road trip. So we started numbers with the children of Israel were at Sinai and we followed their journey to Paran and ultimately the bookends uh, with the next generation of Israelites at the plains of Moab overlooking the promised land. Now, the goal of this series, this very ambitious series that Toby came up with, is for us to see the Bible, to see the Bible, both Old and New Testament, as one big story. That's the goal of what we're trying to do here. Um, and that would mean that we don't see the Old Testament as just some kind of weird collection of irrelevant stories 
um, as some tend to see it, and laws, of course, but rather we see the Old Testament as an integral part of the puzzle. And, um, and one easy way that we can do that is by leaning on the New Testament in, respond, in regard to the references that it makes to the Old Testament. And so I'm, I'm doing that today. I'll be heading back and forth from the Old to the New as we, as we do a bit of a summary here. So the first part of what I wanted to share was a warning. And I'm going to turn, ask you to turn, if you could, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I believe I'm reading from the New Living in this case, but I will use my Bible as a prop and pretend I'm reading from it. <laughs> my ESV, I won't bother because I already told you, so it's kind of pointless. I'm going to read it right here, but you can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 to 11. And I will read. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food, and all of them drank the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased uh, with them. So I lost my place. Uh, and, and, uh, and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in... Buses. Sexual. sexual. Wow, the word I couldn't read was sexual. Of all, things, <laughs> all the, of all the words to stumble on was sexual. <laughs> and where are my glasses, by the way? Just in case. Wow, that, that was a bad word to stumble on. Well, Loretta, thank you for bailing me out. <laughs> oh, it's hot in here, eh? <sighs> All right, sexual. What was that again? There it is. <laughs> Engage in sexual immorality, as some of them did, uh, uh, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for who? For us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. So I'm not sure that the, the connection between the Old Testament, uh, primarily the book of Numbers, in this case could be more obvious than this passage. All those referenced primarily are referencing the book of Numbers. And so um, these things that happened to them were given to us as warnings, and those warnings were clear that we would not crave, crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. We must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and don't grumble as some of them did. So those are very specific warnings that, that uh, the scriptures, Paul spoke to the Corinthian church and then vicariously to us as well. So let's look at these warnings in relation to us. They craved meat uh, in Numbers 11, and they got it. But they crave from an evil, unbelieving, untrusting heart. And, um, you know, so what do we crave? What are the things that we crave? 
What do we feel? The word crave means a powerful desire. So what are we craving? What is a powerful desire? There's even a TV uh, channel that felt the need to be called Crave. <laughs> so it's like, you can't live without me. Pay your $10 a month because you need me. You, I will powerfully uh, allow you to live all of your life's pleasure through a screen. That's why I'm going to call us Crave. It all, for me, sounds very different from living in a place of what the scripture says in 1 Timothy, godliness with contentment. So we, you know, one of the things Tommy mentioned in the, in the um, uh, your time, confession time, was you go in people's homes. Yeah, so do I. You know, we've gone in some very large homes. And it's easy to be discontent with what you have when you see what other people have, isn't it? It's very easy. And it's easy to crave what they have. But the scripture tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. And one of the ways I think that we avoid craving is by living lives of thanksgiving. As a lifestyle, waking up and thanking God for what we have, not craving for what we don't, thanking for what we have. So craving is the first warning. I think all of us stand uh, in danger of, being, of falling into that. The second one was... Again, this could have referenced the golden calf as well, but they also yoked themselves to a false god in Numbers 25, the Baal of Peor. And, uh, and so they, 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 they gave themselves, themselves over to idolatry and God killed the leaders. And so when it comes to idolatry, an idol is something in our lives that occupies the place of God. It could be a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. And we can make idols. You know, what did Keller say? The heart is an idol factory. It's almost like you purge, you purge an idol out of your life, and there's another one already being manufactured in the factory. <laughs> you move from idol to idol. And I really think uh, one of the things that's happened coming into this year is that a number of us have started a, a devotional time. And I really feel like for me that has become alive again, that, that time in the morning of capturing that, that the beginning of my day and asking God, you know, what are these? Things? Are there idols in my life? You know, are there things that, 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 that I need to, to lay down to give over to you? And so I do feel that that has to be a daily pursuit because our heart has an incredible uh, way of creating idols out of even good things. Um, the next one was uh, from Numbers 25. The Israelites began to whore with the daughters of Moab, resulting in a plague. And we look at that and go, yeah, we know, we know, we know about, we know sex is naughty in certain you know, situations. We understand all that. But, you know, I think what we often forget is Jesus raised the bar when it came to our purity. Yeah, we, yeah, don't go whoring with the daughters of Moab. Yeah, no, yeah, we, we understand that. That's obvious. We're not going to do that. Hello. However, Jesus said, if you look on a man or a woman with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. So he, so he raised the bar when it came to living in sexual purity. He's not saying just don't, just don't do it. He's saying just don't think about it. And so we have this kind of this warning that, you know, this is something which how many people I've been a Christian for a long time. How many years? 
40-ish, 38 years, something like that. Yeah, 38 years maybe. Do you know how many people that were solid Christ followers I've seen fall in sexual immorality? Dozens. People you never would have thought they, they could fall. Never would have crossed your mind it was possible for them to fall. They've fallen. And I always say, but for the grace of God, there go I. And so we again recognize this warning. This is a warning throughout scriptures. We are called to live lives of sexual purity in both thought and deed. And Numbers, I'm just going to go to one more here. Numbers 11 and 14, among others, list Israel's grumblings and complaining. And even Moses' right-hand man and Moses' sister complained. Uh, they sit in front of all the people. It doesn't really say that. I, I can't see that in the scriptures. But I think it's probably more powerful if you realize they did it privately. But the Lord heard, the Bible says. And, you know, Luke 12 two and three, don't turn there. It says this, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you whisper in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And, you know, I've seen over the years, our private complaining somehow never stays private. It comes out in the most... Unhelpful ways. <laughs> and, you know, what we thought was our little secret, you know, becomes public knowledge and public shame many times. And um, complaining stops when it's not energized by other complainers. So be that person who, when somebody complains to you, stops them and say, I understand what you're going through, but let's look at this from a different perspective. Be the person who stops it, not the person who perpetuates it. So Paul uses the book of Numbers in 1 Corinthians to warn both them and us about the danger of slippage. That's the warning. Let's go to the second point. It's the promise. Let's move on to that. And the Apostle John uses a story from Numbers uh, to prophesy about how the Messiah will die. And he does it right before the most famous passage in all of Scripture. If you could turn to John 3, 13 to 15, and we'll read it together. No one has ascended. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So let's break this down a little bit. We'll do that by jumping back into the Old Testament again, and let's go right to Numbers 21 and read from 4 to 9. I'll give you time. It's great to see people um, dropping Bibles and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, turning their physical Bibles to numbers. Wonderful to see. I love that sound. 21, 4 to 9. From Mount Hor, they, they set out on the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God again and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? A familiar refrain. For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. 
Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, he shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is an unusual command, I think, that the Lord gave to Moses. I always wonder, like, how do you just whip up a brass serpent at the best of times? I mean, it's like... like <laughs> not easy i like, have it bending around the pole like uh, you know med medical like how does that even happen that's that's complex stuff but anyway that's just another conversation but here we have the children of israel they tempted the lord here that's what they're doing that's what that passage in numbers is referring to this one that's the one i skipped when i did the summary so they tempted the lord and he judged their rebellion by sending serpents among them and then he used the symbol of a servant to save them confusing um, only confusing if we have a part of the story. God choosing to have Moses make a bronze, and by the way, bronze speaks of judgment in the Bible. So he, he told Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole so that anyone who looked at it would be free from the sting of death. Um, it certainly, when you read it in isolation, seems extremely odd. But as we look to the New Testament, I think it becomes crystal clear and further points to the fact that these two libraries of books, the Old and the New Testament, are one big story. So let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Let's flip back to the New Testament again. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in it. Jesus' death on the cross was not the end and it was not victory for his enemies. But rather it was Satan, the serpent's defeat, as the sin of the world and its legal demands were nailed to that cross. He that knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Without realizing it, Moses was prophetically pointing to Christ's death on the cross and the freedom from sin and judgment that will be available as a result of that death. So the promise to the Israelites was, was that looking to the bronze serpent would save them from physical death. But the promise to Jew and Gentile, us alike, is that looking to Christ saves us from eternal death. So we have this picture. When you put the two together, you see that Moses is prophetically pointing to Jesus. And we, 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 uh, we realize how incredibly profound that he put this 
bronze serpent up there. It was not Jesus who was judged on the cross. It was Satan who was judged on the cross. It was that serpent that was judged. And as a result of that, whosoever believes in him can have eternal life. And so our job, our mission as Christ followers is to get people to look up at that cross, to see Jesus on that cross and recognize there's freedom and there's, uh, there's uh, forgiveness in that. Somebody, once, somebody said that, you know, at the beginning when man fell, man fell because of a look. They looked and fell. And in the end, we look and are saved. And then finally, we see a hope. And from chapter 26 on, the previous, uh, previous disobedient generation has now died in the wilderness and their children are being prepared uh, by Moses to enter Canaan. And sadly, as we saw in the video, Moses himself, who was the meekest man who ever lived, uh, and one who stood before God countless times to ask for the mercy and, and forgiveness for those uh, rebellious Israelites, and stood there. I mean, even with the serpent, he just went straight to pray. He didn't even reason. He just, as soon as they said pray, they, he prayed right away. And they were grumbling about him. How hard is that? Um, and so even Moses, um, in a moment of weakness, disobeyed God and lost the opportunity to enter the promised land. And uh, Joshua was then tabbed as his, as, his, as his successor. And this new generation that has suffered as a result of their parents' disobedience, now would have a new leader, and they were now filled with hope for a new future. And that hope was that they would enter into God's rest, no more wilderness wanderings. The land that was promised to them, to the, promised to their forefathers would finally be theirs. But as we see again, as we look at the whole story, um, what they were hoping to receive really only pointed to some, uh, really were pointers to Jesus. The greater Joshua would give to us who believed in him the rest that they wanted. We camped in Hebrews last week with Toby, and I'm going to conclude in Hebrews again this week. So if you want to flip over to chapter 4, verses 6 to 11. I'm going to read that. And again, this, this whole passage from the end of chapter 3 through Hebrews 4 is referencing the wilderness uh, journey through uh, Numbers. So he says this, So God's rest is there for people to enter, but those who first heard this good news failed to enter because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted, Today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God, for all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fail. You know, up until last night, I guess, there were a lot of people in Ottawa uh, shouting the word freedom and, um, and, and demanding freedom. And, you know, while their intentions may have been honorable, freedom is actually not gained through political power. It's not. 
It is not gained through financial security. Uh, it's not gained from changing your status from single to married or from married to single. <laughs> it is most definitely not achieved through religious piety and living a perfect, what you would consider exemplary moral life. The first Joshua could not possibly give the Israelites rest and freedom because sin was not just something that they did. Sin was who they were. That was their nature. And um, it affected every area of their lives. I'm going to read from John chapter 8. You don't have to turn there from verse 34 and 36. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. So through all of these different times we've been in, I've had many conversations with people about our country and about where, where we stand on different things. And this is certainly not a political statement I'm making. But there is actually only one freedom that I'm prepared to die on the hill for. There's only one freedom, and it's the freedom that Jesus gives. That's the only freedom as Christ followers we're called to die on the hill for. The only one. We can promote freedom in other ways, and we can be very proactive, and I'm not against that. But if we're really talking about the word freedom, the only freedom that can be found is in the Son. When he liberates our lives from the power of sin and breaks the chains of bondage over our lives. That's the only way. And so that is worth dying on the hill for. Look through the New Testament. What were, what were, they, what were they in prison for? They were in prison for preaching the name of Jesus in Jerusalem and for proclaiming the gospel when people said, don't proclaim it. That's what they were in prison for. They were in prison because they said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And I will make sure that I spend my life pouring out the gospel in whatever means possible. That is the cause that's worth dying for. So there we have it. Numbers is not a boring book, um, but actually it's an epic account of Israel's history. But even more than that, it gives us clear pointers to Jesus, the deliverer of the world. And... Um, as we see uh, warnings to us, uh, we, 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 we weigh those warnings. You know, uh, as we see the promise of eternal life to us, we either yearn for it or celebrate it if we have it. And we see this hope that is ours. And I think the hope that Hebrews is talking about is we get to a point in our lives well, we do not feel like we're the authors of our own destiny. We don't feel like we're the engine that runs every element of our life. We get to that point of rest where we cease from our own labors. That's what the scripture is referencing. We don't, doesn't mean we're lazy and we don't work and we just go on unemployment insurance. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that at all. It actually means there is a point as a foundational kind of platform of who we are. There is a deep trust in God's sovereignty. There is a deep belief in God's provision. And there's a deep understanding of this story that we've been, bought, we, we've been built into. A deep understanding. And that, that affects every area 
and everything that we look at affects the lens of, of our worldview. Completely affects it. So this hope is that we have a hope where we are not the author of our, our own destiny. Well, we're not the engine. We're not the ones that have to make it happen all the time. God comes through in our lives when we trust him and rely on him in magnificent ways. Not always when we want to. But at the end of the day, look back in your life and see how God has intervened in your life so many times, so many miraculous ways. It is astounding. We see that, and it gives us that place of rest, gives us that place of comfort, and we lose that, that agitation, that anxiety, that always trying to make it happen ourselves. There's a definite line that we're able to cross when the kingdom of God comes in our life, for sure. And I want to conclude uh, today with a charge of sorts that is a commission. Uh, it's two things. It's a commission to the Christ follower. And secondly, it's an opportunity for those that are actually looking for truth. And um, you know this passage. I already referenced it. John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For the person who is a Christian, that is the ultimate commission. We are called to take this message of life to people that don't have it. And that could look many ways, but it starts in your home, it starts in your neighborhood, it starts in your, office, in your business environments, in your sports teams, your gyms, whatever you do, or traveling across the country to another location, whatever, whatever that looks like. We're all called to take God's soul of the world that he gave message to people that have never received it. And secondly, if you're watching this or you're in the room here and you're not a Christ follower, what an incredible message that you can be free from death and all of the footprints of death in your life, anxiety and fear and, and, and addictions and all those things. Jesus comes into our world not to condemn us, but in order to save us from those things, from destruction, from sin, the power of sin. Well, when we, when we think about this story in Numbers, we can, look, we can look at that serpent on the pole and not just be free from the bites of the serpent as they were. When we look at that picture, we see Jesus on a cross and we experience eternal life without ever dying again. Physically, yes, but spiritually, we never die. What an incredible promise. And I want that charge to us as Christ followers to, to rest on us. But I also want, if you're listening and you are, are not a Christ follower, I would love to have a conversation with you around this passage of Scripture, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Well, thank you, guys. Um, I'm going to just pray as we conclude. Um, trust that uh, the book of Numbers wasn't as boring as the title and um, that we got some life out of that, some application, and we look forward to Deuteronomy next week. Is that you, Ryan? All right, Ryan. All right, let's just pray together. <clears throat> Father, um, we're in awe of your story and that things that seemed 
odd and crazy in isolation, when you look at the whole story, wow, it makes sense. We see a sovereign God who controls things and puts things in motion with a, just the author of this, of this story as only he could. And I want to thank you, Lord, that you have put us, inserted us into your story. We have a plan for our lives and a purpose. You're kind to us, Lord. Thank you that uh, we did look at Jesus on that cross and have experienced, so many of us, eternal life and freedom from death. And now uh, I ask you, Lord, that you would help us to go into all the world and preach the gospel uh, to every nation, every creature, in every tribe and every tongue. And we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.